the box. The heavy materials uh, like iron, uh, lead, and gold, and silver, and things like that will get trapped behind the riffles and will stay in the loose box. So then after running this for quite a while, you then uh, take it and dump the concentrates out of the loose box and can them down and get the gold out. Okay, so now you have just taught an entire audience how to find gold. That's where, right. Where are you located? Uh, Am I uh, you, Is you, that a fair you, you go up to that first tree and make a left, <laughs> and then uh, take a right at the second cactus. And there I am. <laughs> That's funny. Just in general terms, geographically, are you in the northeast, the southwest? Where are you in, in Arizona? Right smack dab in the very center. Really? Yes. Uh, draw an X across Arizona, that's that's where we are. We're in the southern part of the Bradshaw Mountains, uh, right in, in the center of Arizona. Interesting. Okay, I'm going to, if it's okay with you, I'm going to invite listeners to call in with comments or questions as we're talking. Is that okay with you? Oh, sure. Okay, 714-545-2071. This is the only time you will ever have an opportunity to talk with Dave Burns and a gold prospector. This is just so exciting. Tell me, um, we were talking about the history of Humbug. Talk about the people and how they worked together, helped each other, survived. What did they do for medical needs, for supplies and, and foods that they couldn't grow or make themselves? Well, uh, as far as medical needs are concerned, um, there, there, there wasn't really a lot in the way of... <laughs> uh, you, 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 when you live in an area like that, you, you just try to be careful and not get hurt. Uh, because if you do get hurt, you're kind of up the creek. Um, now, there were a, a couple of stories about the um, uh, early pioneers there. Um, the, the, the first uh, guy to mine there at Humbug, his name was Charlie Champy. And his wife was having a baby. After they worked at Humbug, they moved down to a little place called Columbia, which was just down the creek about a mile. And she had a, she was pregnant. She was going to have a baby there. Um, they didn't really have a doctor in the area, but they did have a midwife. And so she was, uh, the, I mean, the baby was coming, and there she was in a, in a little stone house. Uh, not much bigger than your bedroom, probably. Uh, and then the baby was coming, and the, the midwife hadn't got there yet. <laughs> and so she told this story about she was looking out through the door, looking up the trail that went up Swilling Gulch towards uh, Tip Top, which was the only uh, decent-sized town in the area. And that's where the midwife was coming from. And... The the the, ba the baby got was, was the baby and the midwife arrived at about the same time. <laughs> <laughs> now that's mountain logic. <laughs> but, but there there was no doctor in in Tip Top either. So, so what ha what happened when people were hurt or they had a really serious medical problem? Uh, well, they either got better or they didn't. Basically, um, they had another baby uh, while they were living there at Columbia. 
the baby was uh, uh, stung by a scorpion that had gotten into its clothes, and they didn't know it. it was stung several times, but and the baby died, and there was just you know there was no medical care. Uh, so they, there's a there's a grave up there with a little baby in it. Oh my goodness, we're really talking about the pioneer spirit here. Well, you, you you had to kind of realize, you know, it, 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 life was like that most everywhere back in those days. People didn't think that that was unusual. Uh, even in towns, um, uh, there wasn't a lot that doctors did for you. They had, you know, some some drugs and things that they could do, and uh-huh. uh, uh, they could, you know, sew up a wound or something like that. But uh, that was about the extent of, of what things were back in those days. Not a whole lot. Steve, what was the magic of wanting to dig a hole in the side of a mountain and and hope that you you came out with gold? Well, um, uh, um, if you haven't actually found gold, it's kind of a um, oh, how should I say this? It's 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 kind of a it's a different experience. When you when you first find a piece of gold, and it 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 kind of winks at you. It's got this uh, this appeal, this um, allure. Uh, you you get an adrenaline rush, <laughs> I guess, when you find a piece of gold. Uh huh. I sure would. And and you kind of get addic- addicted to that. Is that what we would hear uh, in in just general conversation? People would say, "I've got the gold fever." Yes, uh, yes, that's what that's what I'm talking about. That would be gold fever. Isn't yes. that interesting? Tell me about the people who would come together to uh, as a as a district and create the laws and rules for the community. Well, they're they're just regular people. They're they're the kind of people that are uh, that would would go out into the wilderness and look for something, and uh, you know try to make a living and scratch a living out there. Uh, they're they're not different from us um, very much. Um, And they they go out there, and, you know, they have their little disagreements and things like that, or they they worry that they're going to have disagreements. And so they say, well, we need to have, uh, you know, know, some sort of authority, some set of rules to live by so that we can stay friends, (laughs) you know, and not, Mm -hmm. and not not become enemies. Sort of like the town council of the mining district. Um, absolutely, yeah, yeah. You you start with uh, some of the people get together and say we need to make some rules, and so everybody says, well, okay, you know, let's have a meeting. Uh-huh. And so they they get together and people make suggestions, and they say, uh, you know, uh, this situation might arise, so we need to have rules to make sure that you know everything stays uh, uh, on the up and up, and and everybody stays friends. Uh-huh. Because there, there weren't, you couldn't just pick up the phone and dial nine one one. Those days. <laughs> no, I guess and, not. and there were no policemen. You had to you had to do your own policing, and it's it's still you know a little bit like that today out there. Uh-huh. Um, there there's no phone at Humbug. You know I can't uh, call. Uh, I can about, about a mile away. There's a place where a cell phone will work, and if you could get through and make a call, it would still be three four hours or more before a deputy could get there. 
So you just have to kind of handle things yourself. You have to have a survivor personality. Um, yeah, or you have to be very diplomatic, too. <laughs> what, what kind of experiences have you had where you've had to use diplomacy? Oh, probably uh, the most common ones. Um, my, my biggest problem out there is uh, van break-ins and vandalism and theft and that sort of thing. People, uh, people from the city think that there aren't any rules or regulations out there, uh, and they think you know that they they can do what they want sometimes. Uh, now, 99% of people are very good people, and. You know, they, they ask permission, they respect private property and things like that. But that, that other 1%, that, that's, that's what causes all the, all the trouble. And uh, if it weren't for, you know, problems like vandalism and, and break-ins and things like that, I wouldn't have any problems. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you, but you just have to try and handle those things as best you can and try and keep things uh, calm and uh, resolve the situation amicably. Uh-huh. You, you sound like a diplomat, and I mean that in the most complimentary terms, that if there was any negotiating that could go on, you would be able to do it. Uh, well, I've been doing it for a few years. <laughs> <laughs> Just a few years. Dave, talk, how many days a week do you typically spend, or days a month, do you typically spend in Humbug? Oh, um, when the weather's good, I'm usually there most of the time. Uh, um, I come into town for uh, supplies and um, to, you know, have, meet appointments and things like that. And I might be in town for three or four days and been out there for a week, uh, something like that. What is good weather and what is bad weather there? Oh, um, good weather is uh, uh, when the temperature is less than 100. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Uh, you, you laugh. Around here, it's, it's over 100 a lot of the time. I know it is, but gee whiz. Like, like all summer long. Oh, my. Okay, under 100 mm. and above. Oh, we don't worry too much about cold weather. It, it never gets much below freezing around here. So it's strictly the hot weather that... that yeah, is... yeah, pretty much. Um, it's, it's kind of a, it's a hellhole in the summer. Let's, let's put it that way. Uh, but the rest of the time, it's absolute paradise. Well, um, I promise not to send people up there and, and intrude on this. What is the magic about living in a place like Humbug? The magic for you, which is quite quite far from mainstream. How far away from town are you? Either in terms um, of, of miles or hours. Oh, let's see. From from Phoenix, um, you're talking about an hour of uh, Jeep Trail and dirt road to get to the pavement. And from there, another um, oh, 45 minutes uh, to get to uh, the west side of Phoenix. Uh-huh. So that's quite a distance. Um, it's, not, it's not that far in miles, really, but the roads are kind of rough, so it, <laughs> they're slow. It's, it's, um, it's a journey. It, it is not just a quick trip down to get a loaf of bread. It, it really right. is a destination for you. So what is there about the atmosphere, about the history, about the, the magic of being in a place that is so special? What, what is that to you? Uh, you mean, why do I like it so much? That, that would work, yeah. yeah. Um, 
So you're looking for a little bit of float. You know, a lot of it is, is covered over with dirt. You know, with the, the, the rock is eroded and things get kind of covered over with dirt. And what you're looking for are little pieces of rock that have uh, come out of a vein and are, are, are making their way down the hillside uh, by weather. And so you, you find a little piece and you look at it real carefully and you say, I think that might be vein material. And so you start working your way uphill. And uh, then you start looking closer, and uh, maybe you'll you'll see an, what's called an outcrop. Uh, sometimes, uh, most of the time, the vein material is harder than the rock on either side of it, and so the rock on either side will erode more, and it will leave the vein uh, sticking up a little bit uh, above the other rocks, and so and that's called an outcrop. And you find an outcrop, and you look at that closely, and you think, uh, uh, you look for mineralization, uh, you look for uh, uh, quartz, and, and, you know, what the vein is composed of, and uh, um, coloration, and that sort of thing, and try mm -hmm. to decide whether there might be uh, some gold or some silver in it. Uh, the amount of, uh, usually the first most common mineral you see is iron. Uh, there's a lot of that up there, and, and that's always a good indication. And then copper, you find a little bit of copper in there, that might be a, a good indication too. And so you keep uh, uh, keep working on it. Uh, you might um, make a prospect hole. Uh, you might take a sample and uh, crush it and do what's called a horn spoon assay. Uh, crush it and pan it out and see what you get out of it. And if you get, get a real good feeling about it, you might even have an assay done on it. Did you use the term horn spoon assay? Did uh, I hear yeah, that correctly? Yeah, that's, that's an old prospector's term. The, the old boys, when, when they were out there in the hills, um, they couldn't just take a sample and run it back to town for assay. They had mm -hmm. to kind of do their own thing out there. And one thing they would do is um, uh, take a sample and crush it up and... Uh, a lot of times, um, they were way out in the boonies, and they didn't have a full-size pan with them. They had um, a little tiny pan that was made out of uh, a cow's horn, a piece of a cow's horn. Uh -huh. And, uh, you know, cut like a, like a big spoon. Uh -huh. And you could put a, a small amount of crushed rock in there and dip it in the water and, and pan it out. Uh, for a small sample, and you, then you count the number of colors in there. If you see little bits of gold in there, you can count the number of colors and do a sort of off-the-cuff assay and determine whether uh, it would be worthwhile to, to go further with that prospect or not. Well, how cool is that? How did you get your experience? Um... Well, I was kind of interested in prospecting, but I didn't know much about it when I met the, the old caretaker, Nate. And he, he was an old prospector, and he knew all about it, and so he trained me. He did? <laughs> yeah. Um, it was uh, really probably one of the most fortunate things in my life to, to run across Nate out there. Was that unusual or common that someone, now this is Newt White, did I get his name correctly? Yes, yes. Okay, Newt White. How unusual was it for a prospector to share his information and I'll call them trade secrets with someone? Oh, oh that, that wasn't unusual at all. People helped each other all the time out there. 
um, the only people you have are your neighbors, and you have to depend on them. If, if, if anything goes wrong, your neighbors are the, are the, the only people you have that can, can come to your help. Uh-huh. Uh, so you want to maintain good relations with everybody, and every, everybody generally works together. Um, you, you know, you, you didn't want to make an enemy of your neighbor and then have a, uh, an emergency and, and need his help. <laughs> uh, uh, you hear a lot of stories about the, you know, the Hatfields and the McCoys and uh -huh. people having feuds with their neighbors and things like that. Well, sure. well that, that wasn't a very good thing. <laughs> when you're out there by yourself, uh, you know, with just you and your neighbors, uh, you don't want to be fighting with them. You, you're yeah. going to need their help sooner or later. Boy, you don't want to have kicked off the guy who's going to save your leg. My goodness. That's right. Oh, well, how many people and how far apart were they living in this particular area? Oh, um, Charlie Champy was living there at Humbug when he first got started. Uh, well, he and his family, uh, pretty much. And their nearest neighbors would have been down at Columbia, which was... Oh, a mile and a half if you, as the crow flies, but probably two miles if you consider that you had to go by the road. Uh-huh. Uh, it wasn't straight. Uh, so, and, and two miles, you know, that's over a rough country. Uh, it, was, it was not an afternoon stroll um, after church in your Sunday go-to-meeting clothes. Uh, well, well, it would have taken you probably an hour to, to walk yeah. there and an hour to walk back. Uh-huh. Uh, so you didn't go there every day. But this uh, but is rough. This is rough terrain you're talking about. There are no paved streets and. and no, all, all they had in those days were trails. Uh huh. Who who cleared the trails? Uh, they they did. There was nobody else to do it. <laughs> so if they wanted to live in a particular area and have access to it. They, they had to it. build a trail, and if they wanted a road, they had to build the road. Uh huh. And, it, and it's still that way today. I mean, um, I get people up there that, that think that the roads were built by the county. <laughs> the, the, the county doesn't build roads. Well, <laughs> the county doesn't maintain the roads. If, yeah. If you want the road going to your place maintained, you do it yourself. Uh-huh. Or it doesn't get done. What was the most interesting thing that Newt White taught you or talked to you about? Uh, the most interesting... For the most anything. Um. Well, well it, it. Boy, you know, it was all. Pretty, I really enjoyed the history that he told me and the stories of his life. Yeah, probably the best thing were some of the stories that he had about his life up there. Now he he came to uh, the area in 1922 when he was 14 years old, and he went to work at. Um, uh, worked for Charlie Champy, mm -hmm. uh, who at, at in those days uh, he was getting old. Charlie Champy was, and he was in ranching at that time. And so he worked as a cowboy uh, for Charlie Champy. Um, he had a oh you know quite a number of stories. Um, well, the first one was uh, how he lost his leg. When he was 16 years old, he was uh, he was the wrangler by then, there, meaning he took care of the horses. Uh-huh. And that means that uh, the wrangler always had to, everybody else chose their horse first. And the guy who was the wrangler, he took care of the horses, he got whatever was left. And so he usually rode the, the roughest horse in the string. 
and he was out one day, uh, and his horse backed into a Choya cactus and was was spooked by that. In other words, he, he went crazy. Uh, he took off, uh, and, and Buck Newt off. And Newt had a lariat around his saddle horn at the time, and his foot got caught in the lariat as, as he went off. And he was dragged and stomped uh, for quite a distance uh, across the desert. Before he, he finally got loose, his uh, left leg was uh, totally crushed. And anyway, he laid out there on the desert uh, all day, the horse uh, went back to the ranch, and then in the afternoon, the horse made it back to the ranch, and uh, every the other cowboys there saw the horse and said, "Wow, you know, there's trouble." So they mounted up and went out looking for Newt. And about evening, they found him out there. He'd he'd lain out there all day in and out of consciousness, uh, and they put him over a horse and brought him back and took him into town uh, to the hospital. And they tried to save the leg, but they, they couldn't. They had to amputate uh, just below the knee. Uh, and he and was 16 when that happened? He was 16, yes. And how old was he when you met him? Um, he was in his 70s, I believe. Uh, probably about 75. You talked about buildings a little bit ago, ones that have been there for a long time and you're protecting them to the best of your ability. Would you talk about the buildings, what they were, how they were made, what they were built of? Oh, yeah. Um, there were actually two mining booms at, at Humbug. The first one uh, was the one that Charlie Champy started in 1882. And so there are buildings from that era. Uh, the second mining boom was in 1920, and so there were a, another set of buildings uh, built during that era, uh, the, the, and the buildings are quite a bit different. The uh, ones built in 1882 uh, were built at a time when there was, was really no road or anything in there, so they were made out of stone, local stone, uh, using mud for mortar. Uh, and the, probably the only thing they, they brought in was uh, lumber for the roof. Uh, and we have uh, two old stone, building, stone buildings that are still standing. Uh, the uh, buildings from, that were built in 1920 were made of adobe and covered with stucco. Uh, stucco is a, like a, a layer of cement, mm -hmm. mortar-type material. Uh, the, the adobe was uh, poured into blocks and baked in the sun and then uh, stacked up to make a wall and then the stucco was put on the outside of that. Uh, the roof was, uh, roofs for that are made of lumber uh, with corrugated steel on top of that. What's inside these buildings? Um, the, the ones from the 1880s, the stone buildings, they were just single-room uh, cottages. Uh, they were oh, probably maybe 10 feet by 12 feet, uh, the both of them. Uh, and they were for, um, for people to live in. Uh, Charlie Champy and his wife and kids lived in one, and his brother-in-law, Johnny Lee, uh, lived in the other one. Uh, the, the ones that were built in 1920 
uh, were built more for a, a larger mining operation. So there was uh, one large house, uh, we call it the big house, it was the owner's house. Uh, the owner uh, at that time, his name was Frank Hyde, and uh, he built himself a, a pretty nice house there. It was big considering the time and the area, uh, and, and quite comfortable. It didn't have uh, indoor plumbing or electricity or anything like that, but, uh, but it was still uh, very comfortable and big. Uh, another building was for miners' quarters. That's for the miners that worked for him, and it was like a little four-apartment building uh, where the miners stayed. And another building was the uh, kitchen and dining hall for the miners. And these buildings were all made of adobe, um, which is a, a, a really good building material to use in the desert because it's an excellent uh, insulator against the heat. Is it more durable or as durable as the stone? Um, it's, uh, adobe is not durable uh, unless you keep it dry. So what you do is, is the, the stucco on the outside helps to keep it dry. Uh, generally, you, you try to put a, a hip roof over it with a big three-foot eave to keep the rain off of it. As mm -hmm. long as you can keep adobe dry, it will last forever. But if it starts getting rained on, it, it doesn't last very long after that. And what are you able to do to help preserve the buildings that are still standing? The, the main thing I try to do is keep the roof maintained. Because if the roof goes, then uh, the adobe is going to go, and then the building is going to disappear after a while. So the, the primary thing I do is keep the roof maintained and so that the adobe stays dry. And then that also prevents any uh, water damage on the inside. Mm -hmm. uh, other than that, the main thing to do is to try to keep things from changing. In other words, uh, the, the hope is that 10 years from now, things will look very similar to, the, to what they look right now, that there mm -hmm. won't be much change. So not necessarily improving on what's there, but making sure what is there is well cared for and preserved. Right. If you're improving on things, you're doing what's called restoration. Mm -hmm. And uh, well, my, my main thing is I'm doing preservation, which means I'm preserving the buildings so that if sometime in the future uh, money were to be available to do a restoration, then the, the basic uh, building would still be there to restore. Mm -hmm. and, and as things sit right now, there are several buildings there that would restore quite nicely. Uh, but restorations cost a lot of money, and, and we don't really have uh, the money to spend on that. So I, I stick, spend my time preserving. Uh-huh. Who is we when you say we don't have enough money to spend? Oh, uh, the, the property has uh, five owners. It's, it's actually private property. It's a patented mining claim. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, the property is owned. And uh, it, it initially, uh, it was owned by Frank Hyde, uh, the guy that I told you about in 1920 uh -huh. that, that built, built the adobe houses. Um, uh, he owned it, and he passed it, the property on to his daughter. And his daughter took on two partners at one time. And as, as we go down through, through the years here, um, the property has never been sold. It's only been uh, passed on down to heirs. Uh, so 
two of the owners um, died and passed the property down to, to two heirs each, so that now we have five owners. Sounds very complicated. Uh, well, it's, the property's been there for a while. So <laughs> it, it has a history. <laughs> I guess. My goodness. How about artifacts? Have you? You must have come across um, pieces of history, um, things that people use, anything in the houses. What have you found? Um, most of what I found um, are, are pieces of things, uh, not really very many whole things, because. Um, things were were scarce in those days. People didn't just go off and leave good stuff laying around. Um, in the 1880s era, we have uh, uh, pieces of cooking utensils, pieces of stoves, uh, things like that, uh, pieces of tools. Um, uh, generally, when they... Whenever they, they left, they took the good tools with them. They only left the broken ones. <laughs> so, but, but you can generally see from the pieces uh, what it was like uh, there. So it gives you a good historic snapshot, even though you don't have entire pieces of yeah. whatever they used. You, yeah. knew what, you knew what was there. Yeah, things like uh, cooking utensils that were still functional, tools that were still functional, they needed those things. Mm -hmm. and, and so whenever they left, they, they took them with them. When they left, where did they go? Um, generally on to another uh, mining situation. Uh, Charlie Champy was, was there for six or seven years, uh, and he developed um, several good mines there. He actually uh, did quite well. Um, he uh, hit... Uh, on his first mine, he took out uh, 2,000 ounces of gold. Uh, is that big? Which by today's prices would be a um, million and a half, uh, maybe, yeah, about a million and a half dollars. Well, more than that. That's price, cool. Price, price keeps going up, yeah. And his second mine, he hit a 1,000 ounce pocket, and his third mine, he hit a 5,000 ounce pocket. So he did very well. He did. He did very well. He he uh, made a lot of money. He was able to uh, build a, a mining operation there and hire and have people come in and hire them and uh, put them to work uh, in the mines. And and he built a big mill site there to to crush and separate the ore. Uh, and he had guys out prospecting a lot. And he he, he developed it into a going operation. And then, uh, after six or seven years, he, he moved to another spot down the creek. He moved to Columbia down there. And he had enough money there to build a big steam-powered mill down there. And he was milling ore for a lot of the other miners in the area. And after that, he moved on to uh, several other places where he mined. And eventually, uh, when he started getting old, he got out of the mining business and he started a ranch and started doing, uh, went into the cattle business. So he actually did something besides get excited about gold when he, as he gathered money. You know, some, sometimes it sounded like when you were, as you were talking, that making money let him make money and so he would continue making money. Yeah, uh, the thing is with, with mining like that is that when you're the, the first person to come into an area, 
uh, and if it's a good mining area, you can just find gold laying around on the ground because nobody's ever been in there before. Uh huh. And this is the position you want to be. This is uh, this is the great thing about uh, you know going in and being the first prospector there and finding gold laying around and collecting it up. But as time goes on, uh, of course, all the gold gets picked up. And so the second guy to come in, he doesn't find as much. And the third guy, he finds even less. And if you're like me and you're the 487,000th <laughs> guy to come in there, well, you don't find much gold laying around at all. You're really <laughs> scratching. <laughs> uh, that's, that's fun. Are, are there, when I say that's fun, I mean, it's fun to hear. It's not fun to work it. Um, maybe it is. Are you, well, are you having well, fun? Well, actually, it, 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 it is. You know, you, you kind of enjoy uh, digging. Most people don't think that, that digging is very much fun, but when you're digging for gold, it's different. It's like uh, fishing, you know, if you go to and talk to a guy who, who's a fisherman for to make his living, yeah. he'll tell you it's a whole lot of work. But you know, a lot of people go fishing for fun. <laughs> sure. And, it, and it's it's a chosen lifestyle. Um, yeah. Uh, but it, but if it gets to when it gets to be work, you know, then it, then it's probably time to try something else. Yeah. Talk to me about the people. When we've had a couple of minutes before we got on the air, and I, I want to remind our listeners, please give us a call if you have some questions or comments for Dave. 714-545-2071, and he'd love a Merry Christmas, but sometimes people just get so enamored with what you're saying. <laughs> they won't call until after you leave. Um, and that's the truth. That's what happened the last time you were here. We kept getting calls about how much they enjoyed you, and we kept saying, why didn't you call and say so? Well, we didn't want to interrupt, but interrupting is okay. You mentioned when we had our couple of minutes together that the people in the community, in the mining district, would get together or they celebrated special days or they celebrated Christmas. How did they do that? Well, um, th those people, um, they had to work hard. And they had they had long days, and they didn't they weren't really able to get together very often. So so when they did, they they really enjoyed themselves. Um, uh, things like the Fourth of July, and, you know and how things are in a small town, uh, like you know maybe a ranching community. Uh, they they really have very few days that they can get together with each other and socialize and that sort of thing. So. So when they do, they really, they really do enjoy it. <laughs> uh, um, so it really was something special. It wasn't like it, yes, yes, it was very special to them uh -huh. because to, to them it was work, work, work. They were working uh, 12, 14, 16 hours a day. A lot of times, seven days a week. They didn't get time off. And when a uh, uh, something like Christmas or New Year's or Fourth of July came around. Uh, then they knew everyone else was going to, to take the day off, and that was the day to get together. And, and it, you only did this maybe a half a dozen days out of the year. Yeah. They didn't wow. even get weekends back in those days. No such thing as. How many days a week do you work when you're up there? Oh, every day. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay. I uh, unless, unless somebody comes by, you know, I've got uh, uh, guests coming in or something like that. Uh-huh. Um, it's, it's generally, you know, you get up in the morning, you, you work. Uh, when I get tired of working, then I prospect for a while. And when I get tired of prospecting, then I go back to working for a while. <laughs> that sounds cool to me. And you do have tours. You do take people on tours and, I'll say, expeditions uh, where 
you, you teach them about the history of the area. Mm -hmm. How do people get in touch with you? Oh, um, they can either call me at my number, um, or um, there is a tour outfit in uh, in Cave Creek, Arizona, that uh, actually brings people out. We we try to to keep it down to you know like like one or two tours a month because because we don't really want it to become a touristy thing. Yeah. This is more of an educational thing, and uh, it's it's the history and and that sort of thing that uh, people really like to see. And we, we want them to experience the peace and quiet also. So it's, 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 not, it's not a touristy thing where you have people coming and going all the time. Uh, we want people to, to have the place to themselves when they're there. And, and, and just you know, feel the peace and quiet and see the animals and things that they wouldn't see if there were a lot of people there. Uh-huh. At night, when the sun is down and the stars are out, what does the sky look like to you? Oh, it's nothing like it is in town. Uh, here in town, when you look up the sky, you see maybe a half a dozen stars. Uh, out there, um, the, 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 the sky is just black at night, and, and you can see the Milky Way going from, from one horizon to the other. And you, you kind of lay there and look up at the, the stars, and if you, uh, if you look at what you think is a space between two stars up there, if you look at it more closely, you'll see more stars in between. And then if you if you look at the space between those stars real hard, you'll see more stars in between those. <laughs> you spend some time looking. Uh, yeah, I, I really like looking at the sky. Uh, I understand why. You talk nice. you talked about areas um, that if you're the first person there, you can just lean over and pick up the gold and put it in your pocket just about. And, and I, I'm not sure that that's even too far from the truth. Are there any areas like that left in in the mountains? No. <laughs> if, if there were, I'd be there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm afraid the, the old boys, they went over every square inch. Um, you, you don't find gold uh, laying on the surface anymore. Uh, you don't even find uh, veins showing on the surface with, with visible gold in them anymore. Really? If if you, uh, well, I mean, you, you can once in a while find a little, if you got your magnifying glass with you, find a little bit of visible gold. Uh, but, but you just don't find uh, stuff showing on the surface. The, back in the 1880s, um, those prospectors went over everything. And time and time again since then, in the 1920s, there was another boom there. And they had uh, crews of people uh, whose job was to go over that, those rocks once again and again and again and again, uh, you know, looking for the, something that might have been missed mm -hmm. before. So I've been looking up there for 20 years and trying to find... Um, uh, a, a piece of rock up there with visible gold in it is very difficult. How much do you think is hiding in those mountains that nobody has come across yet? Oh, most of it. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're talking a lot. Oh, oh yeah. Um, I think probably uh, about 15% uh, of the gold there has been found so far. The rest of it is, is waiting to be found. Fifteen, one five percent. Yes, fifteen percent so, has been found, and eighty-five percent is still there. 
the, the problem that we have today is, is the same as it's always been. If it doesn't show on the surface, then you can't see it. Now, it can be covered over by just an inch of dirt uh, or something like that, but you can't see it. Now, they, you hear a lot about uh, fancy electronic equipment and stuff like that, but it, it, it really doesn't work that well. Uh, they, st they still don't have equipment today that can find uh, gold hidden under the surface mm -hmm. um, in mineralized ground. I suppose if we could, it wouldn't have the value that it does. Right. Um, when, whenever somebody in, invents those binoculars that you can look down into the ground and see uh -huh. the gold down there, then there will be another huge mining boom, <laughs> and a, a lot more gold will be found. Uh, but, but until then, uh, you really don't know where it is. You can, there's a few techniques you can use. Um, what, what I think is probably the most uh, productive is to look around at, at the prospect holes that, that the old boys left. And, you know, there was a reason that they made that prospect hole. Uh -huh. uh, you can, if you look on the sides of the prospect hole, you can see the vein that they were uh, digging in. Uh, and you, you want to go a little bit deeper. I, I guess I should tell the story about Joe Stockdale. He was one of the prospectors from the uh, from around 1930 that was hired on down there, and his job was to go around looking for gold. But he, he did a little work on his own, too. He had a couple of claims uh, near there. And uh, one of the claims had a, had, a, had a vein on it that showed just a little bit of gold, you know, not enough to get excited about. Or, uh, but anyway, he kept uh, digging on it, hoping it would get better. And it, he worked it and worked it, and boy, it just, it just wouldn't get better. And one summer day, it was really hot, and he was sweating and working away. And these, these two dudes from Boston come along, and uh, they're watching him dig. And, uh, one of them says, boy, you know, this, this prospecting, it looks like fun. I'd like to try that. Boy, you know, Joe was thinking, you know, these dudes, I'll show them. And he gave them the claim. He just threw his shovel down and he said, here, why don't you take it? Well, they, they dug less than a foot from where Joe stopped. And they hit a really, really rich pocket oh. of gold. Uh, oh, now, my. Now, Joe, I, some years ago, about 20 years ago, Joe told me this story, and that was about 60 years after it happened. <laughs> and when he told me this story, there were two.